circle, yes, we rotate. 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Miwok-occupied Ohlone Territory, also known to settlers as Marin County, California. On tonight's show, we'll hear an introduction to Deanna Levy, who grew up in a cult, and now hosts an interview show about people who grew up in cults and how they adjusted to mainstream society after they left. We will hear episodes in the podcast Generation Cult to find out how cults are similar and yet different. We will hear a discussion about resources for people who want to leave a cult. All that and more on Full Circle. I'm your host, Pamela P. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. All right. Again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Pamela P., and I'm your host tonight. On tonight's show, we will be exploring cults. What are they? How are they similar and yet different? We are fortunate to have Deanna Levy on the show to guide us on this navigation of cults. To navigate the current political scene in America, an understanding of cults will help us manage the influx of information which pours in daily. Deanna is a journalist, psychologist, a podcast producer, and is publishing a research paper on cults and the impact of media. We will dive into the podcast episodes tonight on Generation Cult, now in its third season. Deanna Levy grew up in a commune connected to the United Lodge of Theophis and now hosts the podcast Generation Cult, an interview show about people who grew up in high-demand groups and how they adjusted to mainstream society after they left. She has a bachelor's degree in journalism and worked as a newspaper reporter in California and overseas for about 15 years for becoming a freelance writer for magazine and websites in the San Francisco Bay Area. She recently received her MS in the Psychology of Coercive Control from the University of Salford. Deanna's research and paper is being published soon in the International Journal of Coercion, Abuse, and Manipulation, and it is called Cults and Media Stereotypes. Does media coverage of current and former cult members hinder victims' recovery? Generation Cult has hours and hours of interviews. 
The podcast is now in season three and has become an important resource for academics and people seeking to leave cults. To kick off the show, here is an excerpt from an interview I did with Diana introducing herself and her work. Welcome, Diana, to Full Circle. Begin by telling us how you began the podcast and why. Oh, hi, Pamela. Um, well, uh, the podcast started out of another project that I began. Um, I started my career as a newspaper reporter, and I um, I kind of ended up in in this whole cult space. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say by accident, but um, <laughs> what happened was that I uh, decided to just use my interviewing skills, like some of my past work, just stuff I had developed and kind of turn it to my own life and start researching this group that I was actually raised in. And uh, the first idea was I was going to write a book, but the project started expanding and expanding to the point where I felt like my story wasn't the full story. I started wanting to incorporate other people's stories. So as I started reaching out to people who studied cults and then also meeting other people who had left them and had had grown up in them and left them, I just, I started collecting all these great stories and decided it would be really interesting to make it into a podcast. And I know Mm -hmm. we're going to later play an excerpt of one of the podcasts that talks about what is a cult, but just in a quick cliff notes, can you tell us what best defines the use of the word cult? Yeah, actually, I have something I pulled right here, kind of like Ashlyn did in the interview that you're going to be playing. Um, It's a little shorter, though. Um, This is the definition I used in my recent master's dissertation, and um, It's a cultic movement, um, group or movement has been described as one that exhibits great devotion to a person, idea, or thing, and uses unethically manipulative techniques to control its members who can be exploited to benefit the group's leader. So that's the, there's a lot of definitions out there, Mm -hmm. but that was the definition, um, and I attribute it to Weston Langoni. Um, That's the definition that most, that I felt like described a cult a lot better than some of the other ones I've seen. So next we will hear an excerpt of season three, episode two, Denial and Diana. And this is Diana's own story of growing up in a cult and how she left it. It's a good example of denial, an important coping mechanism for growth. And I emphasize that because there's an association with denial as being not a good thing. And actually, I think my personal take on it is that it's a time when your subconscious can process things and you just shut down other stuff so that you can cope and figure things out. So that's what I felt when I was listening to this particular podcast. We'll hear... An excerpt of season three, episode two, Denial and Diana. This is Diana's own story of growing up in a cult and how she left it. It's a good example of denial, an important coping mechanism for growth. And it's also a, a very personal story. And I know myself how hard it is to 
put personal things out there for the whole world to hear. So yeah, first, thank you for your bravery. And <laughs> thank you. Sharing your story with us. Is there anything you could share with us that would help us work our way into this? You mentioned how hard it is to tell your own story. I can't, I couldn't agree with you more. It's really, really hard for me to talk about myself. And I think one reason I started the podcast instead of, I don't know, writing a memoir or something is that I was able to kind of like focus on other people because it's really, really hard to bring myself into it. But this second episode that you mentioned in the third season, it just, it felt necessary because people kept asking, you know, what's your story? What's your background? Mm. So I did it. But yeah, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to talk about your experience with these things. All right. That's Deanna Levy, the host of Generation Cult. Let's go to the clip of Season 3, Episode 2, Deanna and Denial. everyone. Welcome back to Generation Cult, a podcast about people who grew up in controlling groups, also known as cults, and how they adjusted to the rest of the world after they left. As some of you may have picked up on already, I am not Diana, who is the regular host of this podcast. Um, some of you may already know who I am, but for those of you who do not know, my name is Ashlyn Hilliard. I was Diana's classmate in the Psychology of Course Control program. And on the side, I am a consultant who helps family members with loved ones and groups understand cult involvement. You are all in for a real treat today as we get to dive into Diana's story and get to know the host behind the podcast. So Diana, thank you for allowing me to interview you today. And hey. welcome on. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Of course. It's probably interesting to be on the other side. Definitely. Yeah. The microphone, so to speak. I kind of want to begin by just looking very big picture. Give me a snapshot. Where exactly did you grow up? Did you grow up in a large family, a small family? What was the group that you were involved in? Yeah, I grew up in a small family. It was my mom, my dad, my sister, and I. This all took place in Santa Barbara, California, which is a really pretty city. The group that I was in had a commune, probably about 100 people total at its height. And they studied something, or we studied something called theosophy, which I found very hard to define. I mean, depending on who you ask, it's kind of meant to connect between the East and the West. Theosophy means divine wisdom. So it's kind of based on this concept that there's this divine wisdom that everyone's trying to have. And there are these great teachers out there who are supposed to help us find this divine wisdom. Theosophists also believe in reincarnation. So your soul is reincarnated. Also, the concept of universal brotherhood, you are supposed to promote social improvement. So those were kind of the basics behind the ideology. There are a lot of theosophical societies around the world. My group came about because there was another group that branched off called the United Lodge of Theosophists, and that started in L.A., and then the group I was in was kind of a branch of that that broke off from the LA group and was a group in Santa Barbara. And we ended up having our own 
charismatic controlling leader. And so I felt like we were somewhat isolated from other theosophists. I didn't even know much about any other theosophists at the time, really. Yeah, it's actually really fascinating the way in which you're describing theosophy, where it's like you mentioned, this East meets West. It's this bridge. Uh, When you're describing this, I'm kind of thinking about community and a lot of these concepts. And it really sounds like it could be something that has to do a lot with internal experience. When you mentioned divine wisdom, and perhaps the experience of theosophy could be different to everyone involved in theosophy. (laughs) And maybe that's why there's such an unclear definition. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, you're not wrong at all. In fact, when I first decided to start delving in and researching the group I grew up in, I started tracking down and interviewing people who were adults when I was a kid at the time. And then I interviewed some of my friends who I grew up with and started each interview by saying, how do you define theosophy? And everyone had a wildly different answer. That's fascinating. So, you know, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you mentioned that this particular group, you kind of came from a branch of a branch, right? Um, Yes. And I understand a lot about branches of groups and sects and throughout even just U.S. history for just looking at U.S.-based groups. But you were kind of isolated, it sounds like, from the greater community of a whole, of theosophists, I mean. What made this branch off unique? You mentioned the United Lodge. What made this branch off different? What were they striving for? I'm not sure what the end goal was. I know that at a certain point, it got very unhealthy because of the charismatic leader. There was a man named Raghavan, a very brilliant man who authored books. He was a professor. And the whole thing started to kind of revolve around him. So I guess if I was to say what made it unique, I would say Raghavan. Okay. Because he kind of ran the show. Okay. And describe Raghavad to me. Was this person, you know, when I think of commune settings, what stereotypically comes to mind is someone who's dressed like the Bhagwan from Rashidish Pure. Like it, it's a very almost uh, mythical Eastern character in the robes and the long beard. That is a very stereotypical version that comes to mind. Was that your experience with Raghavan? No, not really. I mean, he didn't wear robes or anything. None of us really wore anything that made us stand out. I mean, honestly, it just looked like a bunch of properties that we lived on and we were just people in them. And like none of us, as far as I know, none of us looked different, including Raghavan. He just, you know, he was an Indian man uh, with longer, dark hair, very stern looking. I actually only met him several times. He didn't interact much with the children. He didn't really want to deal with us, but I did see him a few times. And yeah, I I don't think he fits the stereotype in the dress, but I do feel like he kind of just fits right in with all the other descriptions of cult leaders that get full of themselves and start taking advantage. Sure. And it's interesting when we think of communes, I've heard you describe before that your commune was a pretty mellow commune. And I actually love that description. There are so many different kinds of communes. There's different portrayals of communes. I I knew someone who was involved in a high intensity Christian cult that was living communally. They basically bought homes on an entire street block, mm-hmm. for example, and that was kind of their version of a commune. So I think it's really interesting to kind of break these down so that we kind of move from just this one picture and portrayal of what a commune is and this sort of really sort of intense 
end of the scale when it comes to communes of, you know, just no privacy at all. Um, you were communally living, it sounded like it was about 100 people. When you say it was a mellow commune, maybe this is a funny question, but what were the vibes of the commune? Like, did you feel the sort of hippies? hippies? Okay. Okay. It's definitely like a hippie commune, but yeah. not the kind of hippie commune you think. But when I say, oh, I grew up in a commune, people picture like tents and like a right. bunch of beds and everyone sleeping right. in the same no room. Privacy. And, yeah. yeah, it really wasn't like that. It was properties. We probably at a certain point had seven different properties and some of them were just right in downtown Santa Barbara. Yeah. And we lived next to each other. Some people shared houses. We moved around a lot within the communes, which was kind of odd. I was told that our leader would just decide each year where he wanted us each to live and plan that out. I, I don't have any exact proof of that, but that is something I've, I've heard from someone. But anyway, we, we moved around a lot to different apartments within these properties. But honestly, even if you came over to the house, you wouldn't have really been able to tell that yeah. they were common. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention these experiences and what the different ways in which communes can look like. So you were born and raised in this group. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to familial involvement, are you a second generation? Are you a multi-generation? What was sort of your path and upbringing into this sort of environment? Yeah, no, I'm a second generation SGA. My dad was raised in a Jewish family and my mom was raised in a Christian family. They're from Syracuse, New York. They ended up coming out to California a little bit before that. Before they got to California, my sister was born. She was severely disabled and needed a lot of assistance. So I, I don't think this is the main reason, but one reason I think they appreciated living communally was because people could help them out. There were more people around to help. But yeah, they moved into this commune. And I don't think it, the communes were even developed until maybe like the early 70s. Okay. And you grew up in this commune. What time period are we talking? Uh, what years were your formative experiences within this group? I'd say 80s and 90s. Okay. Because um, even I imagine that the time period from when the group first started existing to perhaps within the 80s and 90s, perhaps there was changes. Uh, maybe not. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes groups can stay very much the same. But maybe over time, there were some changes, fluctuations in what your family members experienced versus what you experienced. I'm curious as to if you know anything about that. Um, oh, yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of changes. There was some weird drama that I just I didn't understand as a kid. In the last five, six years, I've actually kind of dug up information about it, I've interviewed people, I've dug up newspaper articles because there were some newspaper articles written about us. Yeah. And, you know, things kind of fell apart. People started not liking our leader. They started feeling like they were being misled or taken advantage of. And there became this like huge split within the group. And there were people who were like, no, we don't want to follow Raghavan anymore. And then there was another group of people who were like, no, no, he's the great teacher. Right. And so those people who consider, you know, continued to support him, they moved off and formed their own commune. And then I kind of feel like I hovered in the middle because we stayed on one of the communes. We didn't have a lot of money. So I assume it was probably a financial thing. Yeah. Um, we were still kind of involved, but it just, it was really confusing. So that, that was the big change. When the newspaper articles came out, 
it was because people had donated their property. Like that's where these communes came from. They were properties in Santa Barbara owned by people. You can only imagine how much that's worth right, today. Right. And um, some people felt like they were basically coerced into signing their properties over. So there was a lawsuit and that's how the articles started, you know, talking about the lawsuit and, you know, some accusations people had about the group. So that, yeah, that was some of the drama. So was this drama, was that unfolding during your time in the group or was that pre your time? Like, was that during your parents' time or while you were? Mine, mine. I was a kid. It was the weirdest thing because like you grew up, I grew up with all these, you know, with these people around me. We weren't completely isolated. I mean, obviously we were right in Santa Barbara. I even went to public school, Mm -hmm. but I think I, I felt like I kind of stuck within the group but it's not like we were completely cut off. So there's all these people you're used to having around your entire life. And then all of a sudden people just start disappearing. Like they're just gone. At first it was like, no one would tell me why, like why have these people all of a sudden disappeared? Then it was like, oh, well, we don't talk to these people anymore. We don't really interact with these people anymore. And then And then I heard that these like horrific articles came out that were terrible. Right. I certainly wasn't shown them, but it was like, oh, they were so bad. I can't believe someone wrote a story about us. It was so awful. And that kind of marked the beginning of the end to me because that's when it all started to kind of go downhill. Right. So you knew that there was some sort of unusual things happening, you know, within the commune, within your own life with people just sort of uprooting. What age were you when you really started to put some of these pieces together? Yeah, it's interesting to think about because I feel like I started noticing something was a little off when I was like nine or 10. You know, my friends and I would talk about it would be like, Oh, well, this is weird. And it's like we interacted with other kids like in public school, yeah. like we knew how we were living was a bit different. And there's also this kind of secrecy involved, like for some reason, we couldn't talk about it to other people. So that itself was kind of weird. I don't know if that struck me as weird at the time. I just knew I couldn't really talk about it. So you were talking to friends about it. Yeah, my friends within the group, we'd be like, this is weird. And we always thought our parents' devotion to Raghavan was really strange. Some of my friends' parents would just be gone all the time because they just constantly worked on his house for free or other projects for him. So people were constantly doing unpaid labor and like, as children, you just think like, oh, my parent isn't there. What's going on? You know, and you're upset about it. You don't think, I don't know, this is for the greater good or whatever it is they wanted us to think. So, you know, we definitely noticed something was off. But yeah, when those articles came out, I was probably 13 or 14, maybe. And I don't know, that was like, for some reason, like proof that something weird was going on, because it was like the real world, the outside world had acknowledged it. And even though I didn't see the articles at the time. It still kind of struck me as like, okay, now the outside world is getting involved. And then once all the turmoil happened, the people moving away, I I started finding out more and more, and then it just kind of became more real. I can only imagine how unusual that is. You know, how many 13-year-olds have to sort of learn and face these sorts of challenges like you did yourself how did this unfolding in this realization this sort of reckoning that the community was facing with the public how did that affect you 
as a 13 year old at that time. I was a pretty unhappy 13 year old. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not sure how many people actually are happy when they're 13, <laughs> kind of a tumultuous age. Um, I know that I was miserable in both places. I was not happy at home and then I wasn't happy at school. I mean, I was weird. Um, so people weren't exactly nice to me. So like, I guess I just kind of felt like I had I had this problem. I knew something was going on with my home life, with this group. I didn't totally understand what it was. And I knew I couldn't talk about it with anybody. And then at the same time, I was like trying to be what I considered normal, but it wasn't really going that well. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know how to describe how I was feeling. I'm probably unhappy and conflicted. And I'm sure there was just a lot of confusion. I didn't take the time to be like, wait, this is a bad situation. I just thought like, oh, there's something wrong with me. This is all me. Kind of internalize all of that. And unfortunately, I'm assuming at that age, we just don't have the tools (laughs) you know, when we're still so much under the influence of our parents. And then you're under the influence of this greater community at large in the turmoil that's going on. You probably didn't even know that you had options available to you. And your brain probably wasn't even going to those places. No, it's it's very easy for young people to internalize these experiences and think, oh, is it something that I did? This sort of self-blame, this guilt, this confusion. You know, you mentioned that your parents may have been at least a part of may perhaps were drawn to this group because of your sister helping your severely disabled sister. And that's really powerful. And that I think a lot of people don't realize and why I feel like these stories such as yourselves are so important to share is that things that are outside of our control, things that we feel like we need help with, those elements can actually be really attracting to groups who either feel like they can hold the answer or perhaps they could offer more help either financially or maybe with just more helping hands like within your family system. And I just wonder, do you feel like your family received the support they were looking for in the group that kept them there? Or do you feel like perhaps that was their initial entrance and they ended up staying for other reasons? Well, I think they also entered the group because my dad had taken an interest in theosophy. So mm-hmm. it was the ideology too. Sure. But yeah, the the helping aspect. I think they did find help. Honestly, I definitely did have some bad experiences in the group and there were some really weird people in it. But overall, a lot of the people were lovely. Sure. Like They were really nice people who wanted to help and they were helpful. I mean, I, I think that to a certain extent, my parents did get what they were looking for. They needed some support and I'm, I'm sure they got it. I'm not sure how much they paid for that support. And I don't mean financially. I mean, in like free labor, time, emotional distress. I'm sure that they did pay for it in a way. But to answer your question, yes, people were helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And watching my sister, watching me whenever we needed something. And I mean, that's that is the thing about groups like this. You say I was raised in a cult and people think it's all just like terrible, like horrors. But it's like. Well, the reason people get into these groups and stay is because like they're getting something out of it. And in my parents' case, it was community. And a lot of other people from the group I've talked to, that was the same for them. They loved the community. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 FM, KPFA Pacifica Radio. 
kpfa.org. I'm your host tonight, Pamela P. Tonight we are featuring episodes from Generation Cult, a podcast of people raised in cults and how they left. We just heard from Deanna Levy, who produces Generation Cult, and how she got started doing the podcast and sharing her personal experience growing up in a cult. Next up, we will hear the story of Ashlyn, who was raised in a Christian cult and how she left it. Ashlyn now works with a nonprofit helping people who want to leave a cult. Let's go to Generation Cult Podcast, hosted by Deanna Levy. This is Season 3, Episode 1, What is a Cult? Hey everyone, welcome back to Generation Cult, a podcast about people who grew up in controlling groups, also known as cults, and how they adjusted to the rest of the world after they left their groups. I'm Deanna, and I am so excited to welcome you back for a third season of the show. This episode's theme is, what is a cult? It seems like a basic question, but it's one that I get all the time, and appears to have a multitude of answers, depending on who you speak with. Today, we'll be discussing this question with our guests toward the end of the show. And our guest is Ashlyn Hilliard, who you are actually going to be hearing a lot more throughout the season because she has been helping me out with interviews and discussions. So I'd like you to get to know her a little bit better. Ashlyn grew up in a controlling Christian organization in Utah, and after leaving the group, became known for her work helping women escape polygamous organizations. She also served as the director of events for the International Cultic Studies Association. And she was my classmate basically through the pandemic as we both studied for and received very recently our graduate degrees in the psychology of coercive control. And as if that wasn't enough, Ashlyn has just started her own LLC to help people leaving cults. And that organization is called People Leave Cults. So Ashlyn, welcome. Thank you for being here today and for all your work on this season. Hi, thank you for having me today. So I was born and raised in a um, very conservative branch of the Church of Christ. There are a lot of different types of churches of Christ. So I kind of put that out as like a caution. You have the International Churches of Christ. They're probably the most well-known in the like cultic studies field for good reason. I mean, they had a very charismatic leader, but the branch that I originated from, they're very conservative in nature, non-institutionalized. So they don't have any sort of like governing body or any sort of like governing leadership. They're non-denominational, so to speak. And they are also known as the antis. That's A-N-T-I, the antis, because they are anti- a lot of things. Um, <laughs> so I left the anti-movement anti of the Church of Christ. Okay. And since the show is called Generation Cult, and obviously we're focusing on more controlling groups, I wanted to ask what in your mind makes this group different than like your just regular mainstream Christian church down the street? Like what made it more high control? Yeah. 
I think that's a really good question and a really important question because spiritual abuse can happen in that church down the street. Mm -hmm. But in my group, because it was non-denominational, each church operates independently, if that makes sense. So if you went to a conservative church of Christ in like California, you could also go into a conservative church of Christ somewhere on the East Coast. And if they are of the same beliefs and practices, you're going to hear pretty much the same sort of language being taught. You're going to notice the same sort of traditions during the worship service. And that is because the way in which this particular movement, church, employs coercive control is through how you interpret the scripture. And if you don't interpret the scripture in that way, that could be a salvation issue for you. And it's very isolating in that it also teaches you that all these other churches that are going on, like the church down the street, like you said, Diana, mm-hmm. they are at risk for not being saved because they don't employ the same critical thinking techniques that we do when it comes to interpreting scriptural issues. So there just wasn't a lot of wiggle room. It was no. white. It was like this or nothing. Very black and white. Yeah. Yeah. This or nothing. The scripture is taken very literally and it's very um, cherry picked, so to speak, as to where they draw the line on certain issues. It sounds like there were very strict rules as far as like what you could do in the church. How did that apply to your community? Like, do you feel like you were closed off and limited or did you feel like outside the church you had more options? Yeah, I mean, I think it more so made me really sad because You know, hearing these concepts from a very young age, like we have to do it this way, that implied that looking outside of the church into my broader community, that they would not be saved because, you know, they had different traditions or different beliefs. So that was kind of the result of adhering to this particular hermeneutical methodology and applying scriptures and learning about it. So it was very discouraging. And it was very interesting because I grew up in Utah. And when people hear that I grew up in Utah, they assumed that I was born and raised LDS, Mormon. But yeah, actually, no, (laughs) Um, I was in a very, very small bubble within another conservative bubble, which was the Mormon LDS church and community. It was so interesting. I grew up in Kaysville, Utah, and I went to a huge public school there. And it was one of the most concentrated LDS areas north of Salt Lake City. So I was full-blown immersed in Mormon culture. I was very isolated in that regard, being one of the only non-Mormon kids Mm. in my entire 5A high school. That was wild. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Yeah, it was tough. You know, I had teachers who'd pull out the Book of Mormon during class and would just start reading. It's like church and state doesn't really exist there because, you know, the, the LDS church is so behind a lot of the law policies local governance issues. And so it's hard to explain to people like, not only did I feel like I didn't have good friends in the church I grew up in, but the friends that I did have were also part of a high demand religious group. They were constantly trying to convert me. I felt like I had to read and really deep dive into their religion so that I was prepared. In some ways, I felt like I could only get so close to a lot of my friends. And It was very hard being an outsider. I read the Book of Mormon. I studied Doctrine and Covenants. I did everything that I could to kind of, I guess, prepare myself for psychological battle, so to speak. (laughs) So if I did get cornered in a conversation, I would kind of know 
where they were coming from. And that changed my perspective a lot throughout time um, and my approach throughout time. But there's also times where I was trying to convert them. Um, I used to go stand outside of Temple Square in Salt Lake City and Sometimes I'd get in trouble by the authorities down there, not the police authorities, but the temple, the temple people for being there and would do a lot of street evangelism. I was pretty fearless about that. So it was constantly I was trying to convert them or they were trying to convert me. And that was tough. So how did your parents get involved in this? So my mom was also born and raised. Oh. My grandmother is living in Tampa. So within the church, there is a college. It's called Florida College. It's out in Tampa, Florida. It's very, very small. And a lot of the teachers, especially the men who teach Bible courses there, it's like a Christian college, they were some of the ones who led the breakoff sect of the Church of Christ, which I was raised in. So these were kind of like the the guys who led the breakoff movement, who were a part of the anti-movement. Mm. <laughs> and so it was really important to my parents. My grandmother was involved in that school. She went to that school. She worked for that college for a long time. My mom went to that college for a period of time. And then when I was old enough, I chose to go to that college to get my bachelor's degree. So it was very multi-generational, this influence on my mother's side. Okay. But yeah, um, you know, the college influence and getting involved in this very Church of Christ school was also very influential because not only do you have multi-generational church involvement, you also have multi-generational college involvement with the school that teaches, especially young men who are interested in being preachers for Churches of Christ and basically feeds these young people in the churches across the United States. And imagine the nightmare it was for someone like me to sort of depart from a lot of those traditions that were so multi-generational. There was a lot of systemic problems and issues and held beliefs. And when I wanted to leave the group, you know, I was able to just leave. Um, I wasn't like, you know, handcuffed to a church pew or anything. But in so many ways, because of that generational influence, the impacts of me leaving really rocked a lot of things in our family system. What actually triggered you to leave? Like, are there any traditions or anything in particular that really got to you that stands out now looking back? You know, for some people, there's like that one breaking point. There's like that one, there's like that one thing where they just can't take it anymore. I think for me, I was just seeing, you know, I, I was seeing the opposite of unity, really. I was, I was just really like heartbroken and disgruntled at how insular the group was and how unwilling they were to accept people with different approaches. I had a lot of issues with the way that women were treated in the group, especially, you know, we were basically like second class citizens. I had a lot of issues with the fact that there was such a lack of diversity in the group. And I had a lot of issues with the way that LGBTQ people and queer people were seen. And so I think a culmination of those things, just sort of being fed up and really ultimately, I didn't want to be aligned with that and those belief systems anymore. So women, you know, were instructed to be silent in the church and you're just not really given a voice. And when it comes to queer people in the church, if someone comes out as like gay in the church, it's either are you going to practice celibacy for the rest of your life then? you know, or not. And if you're not, you're not welcome here. The college I attended, it even went so far as to I had friends who did not feel like it was even safe to come out 
which it wasn't. There was a fear that they would get kicked out of school, which was a very real possibility if they came out at all. It was horrible. And I know for me, as someone who's bisexual, I wasn't even able to explore these ideas or come to terms with my sexuality until later in life. I didn't even have the vocabulary for these terms or what they meant um, because we were so isolated in this college environment. So at what point then did you actually leave? Yeah. So I graduated with my bachelor's in communication from this college. I decided to stay and stick it out and get my degree. And I graduated and then I got married. It was the whole ring by spring thing, (laughs) which was like one of the mottos. And I did what a good Christian woman was supposed to do. And I got married at a very young age. I got married at 20 before I could legally drink alcohol. I got married to a man and I'm very grateful. We've been married for six years and I married my best friend. We left the church together, which was not easy. And then we moved back to Utah because I had missed my family for three years while I was in college. And um, very early on in our marriage, I, I was mentally out, but physically was still going to a church of Christ. You know, my parents went to this church. My brother was there. I wanted to explore other options, but I was a little fearful that that would really hamper my relationship with my family. And early on in our marriage, when I was going to a church, I started having panic attacks in the church because it was just it was just starting to really go against the core of everything that I had believed and developed and I just could not take it anymore and we met with the elders and they met with us several times and we just we couldn't do it so we left and that wasn't easy we just stopped going Mm. Um, and they announced to the congregation that we had stopped going and uh, what was your family's reaction to that probably extremely embarrassed that their children And, you know, Ashlyn's new husband had left. So that was very strange. And we definitely church hopped after that. We still went to pretty conservative churches, but they weren't churches of Christ. They were just like local community churches. So we church hopped for a long time and we haven't been in a church in years. And that's been really good for us. But it was a weird process. It was a long process. But for me, it was like having panic attacks in the church building really meant that me at my core, my integrity, I could not stay in that kind of environment. Well, I think that gives us a good segue into our broader conversation. And, you know, being is that you were raised in a controlling organization, you did this work to help people get out of polygamous organizations. I thought that you'd be a great person to have a conversation with about what is a cult? (laughs) It is the most basic question. I feel like it's something that people argue about, but I just feel like before we even go any further in this season, I would just like to kind of discuss it and I guess in some way explain why there are some groups we're talking about as being controlling and unhealthy, but we're not basically putting down all religions or all organizations in general. I think it's a great question. So when you Google the term cult, what comes up is, and I'm going to read some of these brief definitions, is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. I think that's interesting, that definition, because it indicates that it has to be religious in nature. Another definition is a relatively small group of people 
having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister. Mm. I actually hate that definition. Yeah, I don't like that definition. <laughs> I really don't like that definition. That it, it just makes so many assumptions and Yes, it's yeah, horrible. It's like it's everyone horrible. thinks something's strange. I mean yeah, I, I know. I, that is one thing that I do get asked about. It's like, okay, well, it's just because it's a small religion and I think it's weird because they wear, you know, purple hats on Tuesdays or whatever it is that they do, like that makes it a cult. And like, I definitely yeah. wouldn't agree with that. Isn't that, it like makes the hair on my arm stand up. I don't like it. Our understanding of cults has changed so much. When cults increase rapidly, during the 1960s yeah um when we had things like jonestown as like the mainstream examples of cults yeah really extreme scenarios horrible endings you know that one sinister cult leader uh narcissist was behind it that was 1960s and then by the late 1970s psychotherapists like margaret singer paved the way for more widespread knowledge on the effects of cult involvement amongst other professionals in the 1980s so even from like the 1960s to 1980s there's more conversations happening about how to define the term cult well how would you define it how would i define it yeah um is a great question can i answer that question by reading i guess one of my favorite definitions of cult sure yes okay please so one definition of cult and this this indicates a totalist type of cult it's long you ready okay go for it a group or movement exhibiting a great or excessive devotion or dedication to some person idea or thing and employing unethically manipulative techniques of persuasion and control, such as isolation from former friends and family, debilitation, use of special methods to heighten suggestibility and subservience, powerful group pressures, information management, suspension of individuality or critical judgment, promotion of total dependency on the group and fear of leaving it, designed to advance the goals of the group's leaders to the actual or possible detriment of members, their families, or the community. That was a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of sometimes think a mouthful is necessary when trying to describe something like a cult. Yeah. I know people want to be pithy and like put everything <laughs> in this like small, quick hit, like this is what it is. Yeah. And it's like, unfortunately, when it comes to cults, everything is complicated and mushy, yeah. including the sheer definition of it. <laughs> That's why I like this definition. I like this definition for a few reasons. It not only says that like, it doesn't say that cults have to be religious in nature. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. Exactly. It also doesn't say that a cult has to have a charismatic leader, which is also one of the biggest misconceptions. I like how it says devotion or dedication to some person, idea, or thing. Yeah. Because I think that really goes beyond our very binary understandings of charismatic leader, something very extreme like Jonestown, or like some sort of religious offshoot living in a cave. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I like that this is a mouthful. I agree with you. And I think because there's so much shoved into this definition, I think it can be beneficial to highlight what kinds of elements can be at play within cults. What I took from that definition and how I define cult, Deanna, because I know, I know you <laughs> want to know. It's, it's nothing wild. It's nothing new. But from that definition, how I define cult is a group that 
is united in a particular cause or by a particular person or united by a particular idea. And cultic groups have to include thought reform. Cultic groups have control over many facets of members' lives. So it has to be united. Typically, there is a thought reform undue influence component. And it also has to have not only an implementation, of course, of control, but also there is a restriction of autonomy. And that restriction of autonomy can look very different depending on the context. Sometimes it can be as extreme as physical safety, Mm -hmm. where you can go, who you can talk to. But sometimes the restriction of autonomy has to do more in the psychological, spiritual realm. What can I question? What can I read? What can I believe without fear? And so these are the essential elements that I feel makes up a cult is thought reform, implementation of course of control, a restriction of autonomy, and that it's united with a certain mission in mind. And that was largely pulled from that very broad, long definition. But Yeah, I like that definition yeah. too. Especially I think important is the restriction of people's autonomy. I think that is such a huge factor in defining something as a cult. Yeah. If somebody loses their ability to choose for themselves, that's so harmful. And I think that is what makes a group harmful. Yeah. Another thing that people have brought up to me that I do like to include, how much do you lose when you leave? Yeah. If you leave the group, is it just like, oh, okay, you know, on to the next thing, like, okay, bye. Or is it like, now no one's going to talk to you. Now people are spying on you. Yeah. Now your family. Like, I just feel yeah. like that's a really good indication. Yeah, because sometimes they're thinking about the here and now context and not so much of the ramifications of what that would actually look like. Exactly. And so I totally agree with you. And I want to touch on language because language is really important. And for some people who have left high control control, coercively controlling situations, it is absolutely essential, important, and also empowering for them to say, I left a cult, for them to understand what a cult may mean to them. In that sense, I feel like definitional ambiguity of the term cult can be really positive because so many people's experiences are so unique because it really can put a term to your situation in a way that can be understood. Unfortunately, it's so loaded. It's so loaded. Absolutely. I mean, it's so negative. And that's an argument people have made to me as far as like, you shouldn't use the word cult. It's like, well, it, you know, implies all of these things. First of all, I'm okay with it implying certain things. Yeah, there is some sort of unhealthy level of devotion. But I like what you said about it being empowering for people to use that word if they feel that it applies. Yeah, I hear the term spiritual abuse a lot. Sometimes people may use that kind of stepping stone as like, well, this term feels good to me right now. Maybe later, it may not, especially when there's a lot of education that they're absorbing and learning about course of control. Maybe later on, cult, they feel maybe better to fit their situation or describe their experience. But for now, it may be this. I choose to respect how people label their situation or if they even choose to label it. If they approach it with the fluidity as well, they're calling it XYZ. I'll also refer to it as XYZ, you know? Yeah, because the last thing you want to do to somebody who's coming out of a controlling situation is tell them, like, you can't explain it that way. You No, you're yeah. wrong. You can't say that. Like, that's probably, I would assume, very yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it'd be horrible. I wanted to talk about how cults aren't always religious. That's one defining thing that I think people get confused about. It has to be religious. Also, it has to have a leader. And I feel like 
it's not necessarily the case. It doesn't have to be a religious group. And also there doesn't have to be a charismatic leader. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think thought reform can exist outside of a charismatic leader. Sometimes it can be the result of cultural or spiritual beliefs or practices. I know for my group, it was implemented through how to interpret the Bible. And, you know, that was all without the context of a leader. And yet I would go home after leaving church And if I was curious about something or wanted to do something else, there would be that thought of like, oh, is this okay to do? Mm -hmm. You know, so even though I didn't have a leader, that influence existed in my head, almost like how it would with the existence of a leader. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So thought reform can happen without a leader. I think that's important. And I also think that's what keeps a lot of people from understanding and acknowledging. And I think in terms of religious, obviously, there's business cults. Yeah, MLMs can be a whole conversation. There's so many cultic environments that can exist also within family units. A family unit can certainly operate culty. Yeah. You know, a parent can almost enact over their family as a cult leader would. And that can exist totally outside the context of religion or a church environment or a commune environment. So that's just my quick thoughts. No, those are really good thoughts. I think yeah. that those like strict definitions or interpretations they have of like, well, this isn't really a cult because of this. It's, oh, we didn't have a leader. Like, like there's a lot of conversation now about QAnon. And yeah. one thing I hear a lot from people is like, it's not a cult because there's no leader. And it's like, that doesn't make it not a cult. Yeah. If you're unified by a similar idea, that's why I like that longer definition of cult, because that was one of the first ones I had seen that acknowledged that you don't have to be united by one person. You could be united by a cause, by yeah. a mission. There's political cults. Exactly. You know, there's all kinds. So yeah, I, I totally agree. I think cult also implies, or people think it implies like some sort of dramatic, violent yeah. outcome. Whereas what I was raised in was kind of, a, I mean, we had some issues. We had a charismatic leader. There were problems. Sure. But like, you know, it was a pretty mellow commune. Yeah. And we never had some big tragic incident. And yeah, again, like I think, you know, for myself and then also for other people I know who have come out of the same group, one thing that keeps them from considering that it might have been a there might have been controlling aspects that were unhealthy to them is that it wasn't Jonestown. Yeah, I'm really happy that we're broadening these conversations. I think it's really important to give attention to the subtleties. Yeah, because once you start discounting them, you have people who are suffering in some way, but they don't know how it happened. And they can't explain it or they don't feel validated. Yeah. Welcome back to Full Circle, 94.1 FM and KPFA.org. Tonight, we are featuring clips from the podcast Generation Cult. We just heard podcast season three, episode one, What is a Cult? Produced by Deanna Levy. In my conversation with Deanna, she had this to say about Ashlyn's story. Now, Ashlyn's story was definitely interesting um, because I feel like it really highlighted like the control aspect, like, like there wasn't anything like horrific that happened to her, but there was a lot of really unhealthy control. Uh, She didn't feel like she was able to be herself and she had to kind of move on and it inspired her experience. It inspired her enough to, you know, continue um, studying groups like this. And um, so, yeah, I, I thought she was a, she was a pretty interesting example
And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. We're interested in your feedback. Please email me, Pamela P. at plyons at kpfa.org. That's P-L-Y-O-N-S at kpfa.org. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show for pictures, archive shows, and important links and information related to tonight's show. Also, please check out First Voice Media on Facebook for videos and other media that don't make the air. Shout out to the Full Circle crew, Miss M, the Executive Director, Free Wheeling Franklin is our Technical Director, and I have been your host tonight, Pamela P. Thanks for listening, everyone, and remember, while you're out there, to protect yourself, protect your health, and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA. Good night, everyone.